Welcome to Music History Monday for May 17th, 2021. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is The Making of an Eccentric, Eric Satie. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. We mark the birth on May 17, 1866, 155 years ago today, of the French composer and provocateur Eric Alfred Leslie Satie. He was born in the ancient port town of Enfleur, situated in Normandy at the mouth of the Seine River on the English Channel, roughly 100 miles northwest of Paris. According to a brief biographical snippet found on the internet, Satie was, quote, known for his eccentricities and verbal virtuosity, unquote. <laughs> oh my goodness, that's not even a hundredth of it. This post is dedicated to Satie's life and personality. Tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes will delve more deeply into his music, specifically his masterwork, Socrat of 1918. A preemptive apologia. There will be sections in this podcast that will drop names faster than a flock of goals does guano. That's okay. Satie lived and worked in Paris during a period called the Belle Epoque, during which the city was home to a concentration of talent, artistic, literary, and musical, perhaps unparalleled in human history before or since. On the Fringe Satie followed his own drummer from almost the beginning of his life. He lost his mother to illness in 1872 when he was just six. He moved in with his grandmother, who drowned six years later in 1878. Doubly bereaved, he moved to Paris to live with his father. His father married a Paris conservatory-trained pianist and piano teacher named Eugenie Barnesh the following year in 1879. Alas, young Eric loathed her, but she recognized his talent and enrolled the 13-year-old boy as a preparatory piano student at the Paris Conservatory. Satie claimed to have hated virtually every minute of the seven years he attended the conservatory, which he called, quote, a sort of local penitentiary. Unquote. Reports consistently state that despite being a gifted pianist, he was entirely unmotivated and couldn't sight-read to save his life. In 1881, Satie's piano teacher, Emile Descombe, referred to him as, quote, the laziest student in the conservatoire, unquote. Well, you know what? That sort of evaluation from your principal teacher usually spells academic doom. And Satie was indeed booted out of the conservatory without a diploma the following year, in 1882, at the age of 16. Somehow, he managed to get himself reinstated three years later, in 1885, 
He was placed in the piano class of Georges Matthias, who had been his stepmother Eugenie's teacher. Alas, things went no better this time around, and Professor Matthias branded him as being, quote, worthless, unquote. According to Satie's best friend, the Spanish-born poet Contamine de la Tour, the only reason Satie returned to the conservatory in the first place was to get a military deferral and thus serve just one year of military service instead of the standard five. Having failed miserably to live up to his father and stepmother's expectations, the 21-year-old Satie moved out of his father's house in 1887 and began his career as a café pianist in the Parisian suburb of Montmartre. Montmartre, meaning Martyr's Mountain, is a 430-foot or 130-meter hill and district around that hill at the northern edge of Paris. Today, the top of the hill is occupied by Sacre Cour Basilica, which was completed in 1914, and the district below it is packed with homes and shops. But Montmartre was not actually incorporated into the city of Paris until 1860, and in 1887, when Satie moved there for its cheap rents and the bohemian company of his fellow artists, it was still a semi-rural suburb. During Paris's so-called Belle Epoque, or Beautiful Epoch, 1872 to 1914, the list of artists who lived and or worked in Montmartre reads like a who's who of the best and brightest of the time, and includes, in no particular order, Henri Matisse, Amadeo Modigliani, Claude Monet, Pierre-Auguste Renoir, Edgar Degas, Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec, Raoul Dufy, André Delaine, Suzanne Valadon, Jacques Villon, Piet Mondrian, Pablo Picasso, Camille Pissarro, Maurice Utrillo, and Vincent van Gogh. Starting in 1887, we will now add Eric Satie to this remarkable list of talent. It was in Montmartre, among this almost unique array of artistic brilliance and innovation that Satie, inspired, found himself finally at home. His first lodging was a room located at 50 Rue Condorcet, right around the corner from the famous Le Chat Noir, the Black Cat Cabaret, where soon enough he became a regular. Having left the existentially uptight bourgeois existence of his father and stepmother and embraced the live-for-the-moment bohemian lifestyle of Montmartre, Satie felt free to reinvent himself as the person he chose to be. He grew his hair out and wore what became his trademark frock coat and top hat. In 1888, he composed his famous three gymnopedies for piano and subsequently identified himself as, quote, Eric Satie, gymnopediste, unquote. Yeah, no one is quite sure how Satie came up with the word gymnopedie. It has been suggested that he chose it randomly while leafing through a dictionary. That's where Satie would have discovered that the word gymnopédie 
referred to an ancient Spartan festival at which young men danced and competed against each other in their birthday suits. What that definition has to do with Satie's brief, slow, quiet, gentle, and pensive piano works of the same title is anyone's guess. By 1890, he was conducting the orchestra for the spectacles at Le Chat Noir. In 1891, he became the second pianist at the nearby Auberge du Clou, where he met and befriended Claude Debussy, 1862-1918. As his career as a cabaret performer and conductor developed, Satie composed. It was primarily cabaret music, works that were, far more often than not, comic, satires and parodies of the songs, dance music, incidental theater music, and operas of Paris's musical establishment, an establishment like the Paris Conservatory that the counterculture Satie lived to make fun of. The dividing line in Satie's life and career occurred in 1898 when he was 32 years old. Claiming that he needed somewhere less distracting to work, he moved into a small flat in the suburb of Arquet, just south of Paris. He reinvented himself once again, adopting the persona of a respectable, genteel, bourgeois functionary, replete with wing collar, a bowler hat, and a ubiquitous umbrella. As he walked the six miles to and from Montmartre almost every day, stopping at cafes on the way to drink and compose, he also carried a hammer as a crude, if effective, method of self-defense. His friends marveled at his virtuosity as a walker, writes the artist George Auriol. Quote, his intrepidity as a walker was so great that he made it into a pastime, and a daily one at that, to cover the distance that separates Montmartre from Arquet. This marche bourgeoisie often took place around two in the morning, across the wild and barbarous quarters of La Glaciere and La Santé, where prowling Apaches were not unknown. This is why our musician carried a hammer in his pocket." Unquote. During the first half of his career, Satie had little by way of compositional instruction or technique, which explains the simplicity and spareness of so much of his music. When modern commentators refer, as they do, to Satie as anticipating minimalism because of that spareness, they are unwittingly addressing the fact that his works were minimal by default. He wasn't anticipating anything. Early on, <laughs> that was all he could do. No one was more aware of his technical shortcomings than Satie himself. So in 1905, at the age of 39, he returned to school as a student at Paris's Schola Cantorum, where he studied counterpoint, fugue, and orchestration for seven years until 1912. This time around, Satie was a highly motivated student and his lessons stuck. The timing of Satie's new education was auspicious because in January 1911, he suddenly and most unexpectedly found himself famous when his old acquaintance Maurice Ravel, 
1875 to 1937, programmed and performed some of his earliest works at a concert of the Independent Musical Society. Satie was suddenly labeled as a composer of genius and became a celebrity, particularly among young composers. What thrilled Satie most about all this ballyhoo was that the firm of Eugene Louis de May, one of the most prestigious publishing houses in Paris at the time, agreed to publish his Veritable Preludes Flasques pour une Chienne for piano in 1912. Uh, the title translates as True Flabby or Flaccid Preludes for a Dog. Flabby slash flaccid or not, these comic preludes sold, and DeMay was soon asking Satie for other such short, descriptive pieces for piano. These publications allowed Satie to do something he had wanted to do for years, and that was quit his day gig, or as it was, in this case, his night gig, what Satie called his degrading work in the cabarets of Montmartre. Articles began to appear about his music, and the distinguished pianist Ricardo Vignes took up the cause Satie by offering the public some important first performances. Better late than never, we suppose. Doors opened wide for Satie, and the remaining 10 years of his life saw him compose a series of stage and dance works, even the first fully synchronized movie soundtrack. He collaborated with Jean Cocteau. He composed a ballet entitled Parade in 1917 for Serge Diaghilev's Ballet Russe, for which Pablo Picasso designed the costumes and the sets. He drank with Igor Stravinsky and Georges Braque. He wrote essays and articles for a wide range of publications, including the American cultural periodical Vanity Fair. It was Satie's friend, Gertrude Stein, who arranged the publication of the Vanity Fair article. Feeling his oats, Satie wrote elegantly calligraphed poison pen letters to his critics which not infrequently found their way to the press and were published as letters to the editor in newspapers. Yeah, this sort of thing got him in trouble, and he was successfully sued for libel in 1917 and sentenced to a week in jail. In the end, the sentence was suspended when friends in high places intervened, including Winaretta Eugenie Singer, Princess Edmund de Polignac, the American-born heir to the singer-sewing machine fortune. As the commissioner of Satie's Socrate, we will meet the princess again in tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes post. In 1919, Satie became involved in the Dadaist artistic movement, joining forces with such artists as André Dorain, Marcel Duchamp, and Man Ray. Satie's late-in-life musical education from 1905 to 1912 and popularity starting in 1911 notwithstanding, his later works still bear the marks of his anti-academic, counter-establishment musical personality, a personality that was a reflection of his own life experiences and environment. As we have already observed, he did musical things differently because that was the milieu in which he worked and, at first, that was all he was able to do. But even when he learned to do things correctly, 
He did not. He could not tolerate the thought of composing in a way that would have been considered correct by the establishment. He was a parodist and a satirist to the core of his soul, and thus his innovations were not a function of anticipating the future, but merely those of a composer doing things his own way. Postscript. From the day he moved to what every source calls his, quote, squalid room in R.K., unquote, in 1898, Satie closed off his private life from anyone and everyone. He allowed no visitors and took no lovers. Satie's one and only intimate relationship occurred in 1893 with the painter and artist model Suzanne Valadon. They were together for six months when she left him, breaking his heart. He wrote that he was left with, quote, nothing but an icy loneliness that fills the head with emptiness and the heart with sadness, unquote. Writing in his classic study, The Banquet Years, The Arts in France, 1885 to 1918, first published in 1955, Roger Shattuck, asks the question that no one has yet been able to answer, and that is how Satie managed to emerge every day from the filth of his room, fresh as a daisy, quote, like an actor stepping out from the wings, unquote. In February of 1925, the 58-year-old Satie was hospitalized with pleurisy and cirrhosis of the liver, and he was, in fact, a heavy drinker. He died some four and a half months later, on July 1st, 1925, at the age of 59. After his death, his brother Conrad and his friends, the composers Darius Millot and Robert Cabby, and the conductor, Roger Desormiers, together entered Satie's small flat. They were shocked by what they found. The chaotic filth was such that they had to remove two large cartloads of accumulated trash before they could even begin to locate and organize Satie's belongings, papers, and manuscripts. Among many other things, they found a large number of umbrellas and, quote, two grand pianos placed one on top of the other, the upper instrument used as storage for letters and parcels. Unquote. Yeah, that's a novel use of pianistic space. But it was the music they discovered that took their collective breaths away. Works that were believed to have been lost. Works that were entirely unknown. For example, Satie believed he had lost the score to Jack in the Box for pantomime and piano in 1905 when he left it on a bus. The score was found stuffed in a notebook under a pile of rubbish beneath the piano. For our information, Jack in the Box received its posthumous premiere in June of 1926 to commemorate the 60th anniversary of Satie's birth. It was produced by Diaghilev's Ballet Russe with its music orchestrated by Darius Millot, choreography by George Balanchine, and sets by André Durand. Piano and stage works, complete and incomplete works, works with titles and others without titles turned up everywhere. Some were eventually published, some were not. We began this post with the observation that Satie was known for his eccentricities. 
is something of an understatement, or so I think. Happy birthday, you crazy dude, you. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.